Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. Earlier this week, the FTC, joined by 17 state attorneys general, launched a landmark suit against Amazon. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice is in its third, heading into its fourth week in a trial against Google. Might be the biggest moment for antitrust in decades. Today, I'm joined by Matt Stoller, director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project, and also Amanda Lewis, who's a partner at the law firm of Cuneo, Gilbert, and LaDuca. She's also co-founder of what's called the Responsible Online Commerce Coalition, which represents third-party sellers and others uh, operating on Amazon. Amanda and Matt, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, Amanda, let me start with you. Can you talk a little bit about what is in this Amazon uh, lawsuit, and were there elements of it that pleasantly surprised you or that you were disappointed in? What, you know, what is the FTC taking on when they're taking on Amazon this time? Right. So I was really, really pleased with the complaint. This is is something that the situation with Amazon and the anti-competitive conduct that the company has been engaged in, and in particular with respect to third-party sellers and companies that rely on the platform for their entire economic livelihood is something that the company absolutely needed to be held accountable for. The other really important thing here that is very front and center in the complaint is the effect of the anti-competitive conduct, not just on these other businesses, which is, which is critical and is important, but also the effect on consumers. And so while it seems like Amazon is offering the lowest prices to consumers. In effect, you have basically the invisible hand of Amazon that is setting prices at a an artificially high level because they don't allow sellers to offer their products on any competing platforms for a lower price. And if they if those sellers do so, they get punished. I saw something in the complaint about the buy button and the kind of exploitation of that. So what does it look like for how how does Amazon kind of discipline third-party sellers? So this used to be in black and white in in the contract, in the agreement that if you if you wanted to sell on Amazon, you had to agree not to offer a lower price elsewhere. The way that Amazon enforces its pricing policy now is if if you're an Amazon seller, and they find Amazon tracks all the prices uh, on other retailers and other channels. If they find that you offer that, that your product is available for a lower price somewhere else, they do what's called buy box suppression. And that's what you're talking about with the buy box button. And so when every day when, or maybe not every day, but for people who shop on Amazon, uh, regularly, when you search for a product, there will come up a featured offer. And if you are not that featured offer or, or showing up high on the list 
of uh, of search results, you basically don't exist. And so again, so this, so what, so the connection here is that if Amazon finds that you have offered your product or your product is available for a lower price elsewhere, you you cannot get the buy box. And it's like, it's almost like you don't exist. And so you're punished for offering a lower price to consumers. I want to come back in a second to how this also hurts consumers. But Matt, can you talk a little bit about how how the Google trial has been unfolding and how how the the fight against Google fits into this this o- overall framework? Yeah, so... So we're in a really interesting moment. There's a there's a basic view I think since the financial crisis of 2008 that 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 we have too big to fail institutions that exist sort of across the economy, and these are not just in the banking system, but they're in you know everything from seeds and chemicals to airlines to search engines to online shopping. You know the terms and conditions by which we buy and sell things are set by a small number of people in corporate headquarters. And there are multiple important antitrust suits that are happening as a result of that. One of them is just filed this week, the Amazon suit, which is largely about how Amazon surreptitiously inflates prices in ways that consumers don't necessarily see, um, but are very real nonetheless. Um, but there is, uh, there are also a number of cases against Google, for which is the gateway to the internet, and how Google manipulates and controls our access to um, to the the web to serve itself. So. Uh, that that case is was not filed this week. That case was filed in 2020, actually under the Trump administration. The investigation started in 2019, and it is now actually in trial. So I think we're in the third or I think the third week or fourth week of trial, where the government is trying to prove that Google is a monopoly, that it has 90, 95 percent of the search uh, market, search ads market, and that it is illegally maintaining that monopoly by thwarting rivals that want to come into the market and offer a different. Uh, search engine or a rival, a rival service. And uh, the case, I, I mean, antitrust cases are weird because you have a judge and the judge is the, you know, they make all the procedural determinations, but they also decide usually their bench trials, which means that you don't have a jury. It's not always the case, but usually it's the case. And so you're just kind of guessing how this random person is thinking about it. But in terms of the actual evidence that the government has put forward, it seems like it's going pretty well. So the, the, the basic claim from the government is that Google has 90% of the search market, not because they are the best product, but because anywhere where you might access a rival search engine, when you most people start to use a search engine when they buy their phone or they buy a computer and they launch their browser and they just search for something and then a search engine just pops up that they start using and they don't think about it. And that is what's called a default. And Google pays, the most important partner is Apple, but it pays Samsung, Verizon, uh, Mozilla, like it owns Android, which is a, a lot of a lot of cell phones use the Android operating system. It pays billions and billions of dollars to make sure that it is the default search engine at all of those places. And the goal that Google has in doing that is to make sure that rivals can't get access to customers and can't get access to the data that customers generate. And that data is very important because, you know, that's what makes a search engine better. And so there's all this evidence coming out showing that Microsoft was willing to pay a lot of money to get Bing to be the default, and Apple wouldn't consider it. Or Apple was considering starting its own search engine, but it was just making so much money from Google that it decided that Apple decided not to, or there are, there are startups. There's a startup called branch, which made a kind of a search, a search product that let you search your phone and all your apps for stuff. 
And Samsung wanted to embed Branch in its own phones because they thought, oh, this is a neat product. And it's not a direct rival of general search, but it is, uh, it could kind of get there. And, and Google said to Samsung, you cannot embed Branch in your phone because it's a violation of our contract, which says that essentially Google is the exclusive provider of search services. So this was called monopoly maintenance, and it's illegal. And then, uh, you know, if if the judge accepts that that Google is, you know, that this behavior is intended to thwart competition. So this is the biggest, it's very similar to what Microsoft was doing in the 1990s. Microsoft was, was you know, the, they were trying to destroy a rival browser producer, Netscape. They were also trying to uh, avoid uh, Sun Microsystems from putting middleware tools into um, into the market. And the idea there was that, that Microsoft knew that if you could, if you if that, that Netscape could put a browser on top of an operating system, and ultimately, if they were able to do that, they could displace Microsoft Windows. And Microsoft didn't want to do didn't want that to happen. It was a monopoly maintenance case, and Microsoft lost um, lost that case. But because what the judge determined and what an appeals court upheld is that they were thwarting competition, and that this was uh, this was unlawful. And that's that's basically the same thing that Google is doing here. And from a consumer perspective, it it does just kind of feel that Google has gotten worse just from search perspective, like in the last uh, couple of years. And uh, I don't have anything to back that up. Just my own like, oh, this just doesn't seem like it's getting better. We 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 actually did some polling. That is that is like about 40 percent of the public does think they've noticed there are more ads. It's gotten worse. Like most people, you know, 50 percent of the public is like, oh, no, you know, we. Google's really good, but forty percent is a substantial number, right? Like, there's a lot of people. That's a that, lot of people. You know, yeah. it's higher than I would have thought. Um, but like, clearly, there's a market for a different search engine. And actually, sixty percent of people said in that poll um, that if Apple came out with a search engine, they would try it, right? So there is there is demand for something different. So Amanda, what 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 are the consumer implications uh, that you were talking about for Amazon's uh, behavior? Because a lot of people might be like, well, too bad that they, you know. Uh, are destroying all of these third-party sellers, but as long as prices stay low and and things are okay for me, I'm not so concerned. But what are what are you seeing on the on the consumer side? Right. So I think first it's it's really important to to think about the fact that third-party sellers are people. So I think of the third-party sellers and as somewhat of like like a digital main street. So these people are like your neighborhood the old neighborhood stationery store or, you know, various businesses, your neighbors, your families. So just because it's a link that shows up on the page um, on on Amazon when you go to buy something, it doesn't mean that these aren't real people with real businesses and real employees that depend on them. Yeah. And in 2016 or 2017, a friend of mine and I launched a little tiny publishing house that we called uh, Strong Arm Press to try to kind of fill a void that we saw. We thought thought there was a room for kind of progressive books that were kind of short and punchy. And, we, you know, uh, we were doing biographies of Trump cabinet officials and things like that. And, and we were, you know, we launched a couple of bestsellers. Like it was, it was metrically a success, but Amazon basically walked away with all of the revenue. And the thing, the, the publishing house sort of still exists, but not really because there, it's just, it's just a volunteer effort at this point because all like they owned everything. They owned the kind of pu- the publishing entities, the tools, the the selling, uh, the printing, the dis- distribution, and they just decided what they would take, and they decided they were going to take everything. So, uh, 
I, I'm yes, as a third party seller, I, I'll just put my bias out there that, yeah, I, I witnessed it firsthand. But sorry, sorry, go ahead, Amanda. Yeah. So so 100 percent on that. And that's another part of the case that we could talk about in a little bit, which are the the fees, the increasing fees and extraction squeezing of sellers that that Amazon does. But for consumers, let me I'll just give you an example. And I'm, there are a few examples that I've heard about firsthand from from third party sellers. And so in one example, someone has a, a product, they're selling it on Amazon, they're also selling it at a major online pet retailer. The pet retailer discounts their product because they have a wholesale relationship with the pet retailer. What happens? Amazon finds this the same product for a lower price, suppresses the buy box, and they start losing sales, like thousands of dollars of sales, right, every day. So what do they say? They go back to the, the pet retailer, the online store, and they say, please stop discounting my product. You have to keep, basically they're saying, you have to keep the price of my product high or I, I'm getting killed on Amazon. And so then, what? so repeatedly these conversations can go on but the the online pet store says not kind of not my problem and the the ultimate result is then usually or sometimes at least the third party seller has to actually pull their product from anywhere outside of Amazon because they can't control the pricing in these other retailers because of the fear that that product is going to be offered for a lower price elsewhere and then they're going to get punished by Amazon then it, it all becomes self-reinforcing and you see a trend here that then you can only get that product on Amazon. And that's, that's it. under antitrust law, the, the ultimate price increase is, is where you can't access something, where a store shuts down or a product is not available somewhere. So that's, that's how extreme the situation is. And so, Matt, back in 2017, I think it was, Lena Khan, who's now FTC chair, published this kind of landmark or uh, published an, a, a law review article about Amazon that became some, something of a phenom. Now, just six years later, here she is uh, in court against Amazon. What is the relationship between the arguments that she made there and, and this case? So that paper she wrote, that paper was about how Amazon acquired its market power. And it did it through something called predatory pricing, which is to say it charged below cost to drive its rivals out of the market. And that was used to be illegal. What the paper, Khan's paper said is no longer illegal. Therefore, you have companies like Amazon. Well, why would you charge lower than, like, why would you intentionally lose money to acquire the market? Uh, to, you know, obviously, because later on, in different ways, you're going to, uh, raise prices to make the money back, right? And predatory pricing was made almost unenforceable, uh, and it's still the, the the Supreme Court made it almost unenforceable. Uh, this case is six years later, and Amazon is now a monopoly, and they are raising prices. And so, this case is not about how Amazon acquired its monopoly. This case is about how Amazon is maintaining and then exploiting its monopoly. So, you know, one way to understand it is Amazon Prime is essentially a scam, right? That's, you know, it's, you don't see that, right? 
But what is going on here is that like most of the 60% of the products sold on Amazon. When you click on Amazon, you want to buy something sold, sold by, you know, a third party, right? And then Amazon charges those third parties that about 50% of their revenue to list on Amazon for their logistics and everything like that. To sell on Amazon, you have to pay one out of every $2. And then, um, and, and then Amazon takes that money and pays for quote unquote free shipping. They also pay for Amazon, you know, the, the Amazon prime, like video services, Twitch audio, like all that's about 130, $140 billion that they're charging to third party merchants. That's coming out of your pocket, right? Because those third party merchants have to raise prices pretty dramatically to kick that money back to Amazon. But then Amazon can't like those third parties are like, you would think, okay, well, if you have to charge, you know, 10 bucks on Amazon, but you know, it, you could charge six bucks elsewhere. Why isn't the web full of ads being like, buy cheaper on, you know, Walmart or buy cheaper direct or for this widget you want? Well, the reason is because Amazon, as Amanda was saying, has these anti-discounting measures. And it says if you can sell on Amazon for our high price, uh, which includes quote unquote free shipping, although nothing really is free, there's no such thing as a free lunch, um, or you um, or you can sell off of Amazon. And if you sell off of Amazon, that's 60, 70, 80% of the customers are never going to, they're not going to see you um, because most people shop on Amazon. So that's, that's essentially the argument of this case. The, the paper from, from Khan said it was about predatory pricing. Predatory pricing is not an element here. However, the paper also talked about this thing called vertical integration, which is basically a company owning a bunch of different lines of business and then integrating them in a way that disadvantages rivals. And it is something that is going on here because the way that Amazon raises its prices is by doing things like saying, all right, if you want to get access to Amazon customers, you have to use our logistics service, fulfillment by Amazon. And that costs a bunch of money. Oh, and by the way, you also have to advertise on Amazon and they get about $30 billion through advertising. And so what the net effect is as a consumer, you know, you, you put batteries into Amazon and most of the links that you see are sponsored links, although you can't really tell because sponsored is written in really, or really small font. And those are often more expensive or worse quality. Um, but from the, uh, from the, the perspective of the seller, you know, all, as you put it, all the revenue or all the, all the margin is being taken by Amazon. And that is a function of vertical integration. So, so it is in part drawn from uh, Khan's paper, it's mostly the kind of new things that Amazon has been doing to exploit the monopoly that 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 Khan described how they acquired. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it's you know. But I, I think there's also there's also one other element here when you're talking about like that paper and the relationship to the case. Um, you know, Lena Khan's a very important person, right? She's the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, but the Federal Trade Commission and 17 states brought this case. This is not. Like Lena Khan wrote a complaint and brought the case. This is a, This is three commissioners, Alvaro Bedoya, Becca Kelly Slaughter, and Lena Khan voted out this complaint, which was written by probably t- dozens of people who were involved in the investigation. Uh, and then there were 17 state attorneys general and all their staff, and they all had to agree on a case to bring. And so that's what this is. This is not about one person. This is about uh, an, an argument how we run our society and should it be run, should pricing in terms and, and worker salaries and all the rest of it be set by a small group of people in Seattle over the whole online retail sector and then, you know, Google for search and Walmart and airlines and Ticketmaster and so on and so forth? Or 
should it be done through a competitive open market and and public rules and that's so that that's the relationship the paper and then kind of behind that the ideological debate over whether that paper is the, is the case hey folks i'm mark marin from the wtf podcast and this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Amanda, there, this isn't the first pressure that's been applied uh, to Amazon. Uh, how have they adapted to the kind of political efforts to, to investigate them and rein them in before? Right. So you're absolutely correct. Um, While I was at the Federal Trade Commission as a staff attorney, I was on detail to Congress, to the House Judiciary Committee. I was a counsel detailee when Lena Kahn was a counsel on on the subcommittee. And we worked with Slade Bond, who was the chief counsel, and several several other people on the committee to conduct uh, a digital markets investigation. And that was focused on Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple. So, so Amazon was um, a focus of that investigation. And I have to say they stood out as one of the least cooperative companies of all four. So they don't respond well to scrutiny. They're not very cooperative. This was uh, alluded to in, in the complaint as well that um, it seems like the company is very comfortable. In the case of the House Judiciary Committee investigation, there was actually a perjury referral for one of Amazon's executives that testified before Congress and misled Congress. What was the upshot of that? Is that still alive? So once a uh, perjury referral goes to to uh, to. Department of Justice, and it was also a bipartisan referral, then it's up to the Department of Justice whether they want to pursue it. There, There is a fairly high standard for proving perjury. And I think the, I don't have any insight into what happened after, after we sent that over, but I imagine... DOJ sucks. <laughs> Let's be honest. Like, DOJ is shitty. I mean... No, I mean, like, it's true. Like, the government is not functional except for the antitrust agencies. Like, it's embarrassing. And, you know, why are there, why is there all this fraud? Why is there all this corporate crime? Like, it's because, you know, the, the, I love the antitrust, what the antitrust enforcers are doing, but like, the rest of the government is not functional. 
one of the things in his complaint is they were lying to the FTC. They were lying to the FTC a few years ago in a, in a, uh, a case the FTC brought on Amazon Prime and deceptive advertising. Like, it, this, we have a lawlessness problem in this country with regards to large corporations. And like, we need somebody to put some damn handcuffs on someone. And like, the FTC can't do it. They have, so they don't have criminal authority and they don't handle perjury complaints. And the antitrust division doesn't handle criminal complaints on, they handle criminal antitrust complaints, but not things like perjury. Like we have a real problem with the rule of law. And I mean, like, I'm going to, I'm the, you know, I'm the biggest cheerleader of like antitrust cases, but we have a problem with other areas of the Department of Justice and other parts of the government. I don't know if the judges would accept a perjury claim like this. I don't know if Congress would, but, but, um, but like certainly the Amazon executives would notice if they actually got some damn handcuffs. Um, so that, I mean, I don't, I don't mean, I want to go on a rant because like, I'm really mad about this, but like, we have a problem with the rule of law and like, it can't, we have to, we have to do more than just what the FTC and DOJ are doing, the antitrust division are doing. Well, even even in the case of Google that's in trial right, right now, uh, you've had this remarkable kind of bizarrely unfolding situation where you do finally have the DOJ taking on right. this major company. At the same time, there's a there's a strange amount of respect on display that that a typical defendant would not get from a typical prosecutor uh google has been able to muzzle most of this trial can you talk matt can you talk a little bit about why we haven't heard a lot about it yeah i mean google has been saying i mean you saw this you know amanda can probably talk about the redactions in the amazon complaint but in google in the google trial you know there's a judge named amit meta right who's that's the judge who's over overseeing it and he he said very explicitly like i'm just a judge I'm not a business person, and I'm going to defer to you guys on uh, talking to Google on what kind of information is competitively sensitive and make sure that I, I don't want to hurt your business, which is, you know, might sound reasonable if you're just like a guy. But if you're a judge, that's crazy. Like, that's a real problem <laughs> because these trials are supposed to be uh, public, right? Google gets better privacy. You know, they get to they, they get m- more protection from a judge over their just normal business behavior than like a sexual assault victim would get in a court, right? Like it's totally insane. They get to hide, like everyone knows Apple pays Google huge amounts of money for the default search engine placement, right? Whether it's 12 billion or 8 billion or 20 billion, we don't know the exact number, but we know there's a number and like it's always redacted and that's totally insane. Like that's crazy. We Why is that, why, why are these numbers just redacted? And so the judge is deferential, but so is the DOJ. The DOJ trial team is like, well, you know, we don't want to, like, they're not like pushing particularly hard for public access to these numbers. And this is something that has to change. Fortunately, like a number of newspapers have done stories. We've been pushing for it. And the judge is now actually, it's funny, the DOJ and the judge are kind of blaming each other for like things that are in closed session or hiding things. And so they've actually started to hear the criticism. And the, the judge was like, look, the CEO of Microsoft is testifying on Monday. I want as much of it to be in public as possible. So it's like, it, it, I, I don't want to allege bad faith here. I think the judge and the DOJ didn't know that people were actually really interested in this. But we do have this problem with like this excessive deference to corporate secrecy, very different than it was 25 years ago with Microsoft when it was front page news every day. The judge unsealed not just the trial, but uh, over 100 depositions, which are like the extra interviews you do with industry participants outside of a trial. You know, there were 20 hours of videotaped um, 
uh, deposition of Bill Gates that were, um, which you can watch on YouTube because the, the judge unsealed it. Like these, the public record is super important here and we're not getting enough of a public record in the Google trial. Um, but hopefully, well, cause we haven't done a monopolization case, a big monopolization case in 25 years, but hopefully like the exposure of the fact that it is super secretive and like, that's crazy because it is, you know, <laughs> apparently Google does care about its own privacy. Um, but it, like, it's crazy. Uh, and, and I think, people in the judiciary are actually hearing that and they may be open to making things more public going forward. Amanda, how's the Amazon case look on that front? Yeah. So if you've looked at the complaint, there are uh, unfortunately a significant number of redactions. I, my understanding is that the FTC is working as to push as much as they can to get, um, at least some of those redactions lifted. So I think it's a little bit of a stay tuned on that. And then we'll also have to see how the judge ultimately deals with it. And going back to what Matt said about how it's a little bit crazy that you do have this for this one individual with so much power um, deciding who can see what the members, what the public and the media has access to in these historic and and really important trials, um, that is, it's a it, it is a little disconcerting that it is these decisions are left to the whim of uh, of a single person, a judge in this case. Um, one thing that I wanted to point out is something that's interesting and maybe not surprising with these companies. At least I've seen it with Amazon is they are very protective of their own confidential information. But when it comes to third parties, maybe smaller businesses who are having no choice but to participate in these cases because they've been subpoenaed, well, when it comes to those people, Amazon wants wants the names of those people and the details of their business to be public. And so isn't that double standard interesting? Sorry, I just want to say there's a, a sort of a funny story when, when not like funny, haha, but more like funny with WTF. W- w- Apple, which is essentially in co- collusion with Google over over controlling the search market, they actually pre-briefed reporters on what their executive was going to say. And there's other bunch of stories, you know, in one in Wall Street Journal, one in Bloomberg, one in like, you know, here's what the Apple executive is going to testify to. And then they demanded that the testimony be sealed, <laughs> right, in close. So it was like it was like there were these articles about what he was going to say, and then it was all closed session. They may, right? or, may, I mean, not, may like, or may not have said that even. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like good, what? Like, this is a clown show. And I think, I think like, what, what is exciting about this moment is that, you know, I talked to, I talked to a bunch of judges now, and, um, and they're new to this, right? They're new to antitrust. Uh, they're new to public interest in uh, some these kind of corporate litigation. Like I've been to some antitrust trials and, you know, I've been to some that are like well attended and others that aren't. And they're, they're, those judges are surprised that there's public interest in these, in these trials. And they, they act differently when they realize, oh, the public is interested in this stuff. So they, they're like, oh, this is something I should learn about. I shouldn't just be like, dismiss it because, you know, I learned these stupid theories in the eighties and I'm going to dismiss these things now. So there's, it's a, it's, it's a kind of like a cool moment to see like this wave of 
populist anger turned into legal arguments. You know, the, the, the work that Amanda Enslade uh, did re- investigating in Congress, you know, that's turned into these legal arguments, which are now hitting the courts and the judges are being kind of bad, but like, they don't know any better. And now they're kind of like learning. And so this is like, it, 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 it looks kind of annoying and conspiratorial, but it's actually like, I think it's actually like a, there's a lot of positive movement um, in the, in, in, in the courts. Well, and to, to finish, I'm curious for both of your takes on, on this, and maybe Matt, you could go first. If you're the judge here and you can issue a ruling, like what does, we could do both Google and, and Amazon, uh, what should happen to these companies? What would be proper antitrust policy? Well, first of all, if I were the judge in the Google case, I would sanction Google and sanction their lawyers really hard for destroying documents who said they could do you know, talk about antitrust with the chat, you know, the auto delete on like that's the CEO of Google said that, right. I would really go hard and say like, I don't want, this is, this is unlawful behavior. Do simply in a, when there is a litigation hold, you cannot shred documents. You just can't do it. Right. And whether you're shredding documents digitally or, or not, like, no, not okay. And, um, that that's very it's very important to do that so sort of just procedurally that's what i would do i would also try to make things as public as possible i would say unless there's a good reason the the data everything is public right if you if you cannot show me direct harm that un, that unveiling this will cause it's public including uh including uh, depositions and maybe not for smaller companies who could fear retaliation from dominant firms but you know, there's really no reason that Google and Apple have to claim trade secrets on anything but very, very, very specific stuff that might be trade secrets. Like, that's just the way that things work. You gotta, you know, your dirty laundry, just because it's embarrassing, doesn't stay, uh, doesn't stay private. Uh, if just, if you don't want to be exposed in a trial, don't violate the antitrust laws, right? That's like pretty you know, that, that seems like, or don't come close to it. So that's what I, and then I would also, you know, in terms of the ruling, I think you could imagine, I, I would, I would, I think the government has been, uh, the, the evidence from the government has been fairly persuasive, but you also have to think not just the evidence from the government that they've presented, but you have to really weigh the evidence that's been deleted. Right. And so you have to like, assume that there's a lot more there that you would never you never get to hear because it was destroyed so the the actual destruction of the evidence should be a strong factor in um in not in like assuming uh bad faith from the company and assuming law breaking like it it's a, a little bit like um you know the um the income tax violation for al capone right like it's when you delete the evidence, that's pretty compelling evidence that you were doing something wrong. So I would take that strongly into account. And then the remedy, um, you know, then you have to have a separate trial for the remedy, but the same problems are going to emerge with that trial, which is the evidence has been deleted. And, you know, and the thing is, is there is another trial in Virginia against Google where Google has been um, screwing around the same way they have in DC, but the judge in Virginia is not, is not having it. She's just like, oh, you made a discovery error? Fuck you, fix it. And so Google had literally had to hire a thousand contract attorneys, which was pretty, really expensive to go through millions of documents because they screwed up in discovery. And the judge is not like trying to split the baby. She's just like, you screwed up, you fix it. And that's, that's the way that you actually have to deal with these big corporations. Otherwise, they'll just, you know, 
They have more information than everybody, and they'll just run circles around you. And uh, Amanda, when it comes to Amazon, if let's say Amazon does get found guilty of of this, what what should be the remedy? That's a really good question and an important one. The so if Amazon is if this conduct is found to violate antitrust law, you can either have a behavioral remedy, which would basically say, Amazon, you cannot have these pricing policies. You cannot have these anti-discount rules. That, that is, you know, that's the very minimum of what should be done. On, on the other hand, you can go further. The, a court does have the power to go much further and actually require a divestiture and say that there is actually just an inherent conflict here. If Amazon is going to run the platform, they can't also compete on it and self-preference and engage in kind of all of all of the unsavory conduct and potentially illegal conduct that is is discussed in the complaint. Courts are fairly unlikely and skittish to order a breakup or a divestiture. But I have to say what, what's difficult is if if you only end up with a prohibition on the conduct, it Amazon has a history of sort of shape shifting their anti-competitive policies. And you also can think of it sort of like a balloon. Like if Amazon has this monopoly power and you sort of you push it in one place or a waterbed, it's going to just move somewhere else. They're just going to find somewhere else to extract these monopoly rents and to exercise this monopoly power that they have in a way that's going to be harmful to third-party sellers and consumers. So it's, I I am someone who, I guess, you know, probably not surprisingly, also thinks that we need legislation. So regardless of what happens here, by the time the remedy gets put into place, and it's very important that the case is brought, but it will likely be 10 years before any appeals are exhausted and there's actually a remedy put into place. And so I think we also need to really continue to push on the legislative front. Um, not that Congress is particularly impressive in getting things done quickly, but um, I do think it's really important to have a dual track and and be pushing um, as hard as we can on both fronts to address these critical problems with uh, not just Amazon, but Google, Facebook and Apple. Um, it's we're in a situation that we are we are not seeing innovation or disruption coming from U.S. companies. Where do we see like the the newest entrant in social media? TikTok. So for everyone who said, "Oh, we can't change our laws and we can't change our policies because everything's working so great and we have the best tech companies in the whole world and we're the only ones who innovate," well, like look around. That's not. That's not true. That's that's not the future. As long as we allow these monopolies to uh, to continue to build the moats and maintain their maintain and extend their monopoly power. Well, Amanda, thank you, Matt. You've often got a last word. Uh, do you have a do you have, do you have any last words you want to sum up on, or are you, are you wrapped up? Yeah, I mean, I think that that you know, to Amanda's point, I think we need. It, it, this has been the most extraordinary month of antitrust action in 50 years, right? The the DOJ has this Google trial. The FTC brought a case against Amazon um, 
the uh, they also brought a case against the uh, a private equity healthcare roll up in uh, anesthesiologists in Texas, which is upsetting everyone in private equity and healthcare. They did something important on uh, pharmaceutical patents on what's called the Orange Book, which is technocratic but important. The DOJ brought a huge case on price fixing in the meat industry, right, against in poultry, pork, and chicken. Um, it's just the amount of, of like, the, the number of cases, the amount of activity is just, I think, extraordinary and really positive in terms of our ability to actually get control of our corporate, our corporations and our markets. And I think one thing to keep in mind is there are a lot of procedural problems, right? Like this case was filed in 2020 and it's just getting to trial in late 2023. The Facebook case was filed in 2020. It's going to go to court next year. The there's, you know, they, they have to go on appeal, right? It takes time. But Amazon is constraining its behavior now. They're starting to treat sellers a little bit better, not well, but some of the people who are, you know, are, who are very upset are like, this isn't enough, but we are getting treated a little bit better. And what's starting to happen, you know, a seller just came out the other day and was like, I wanted to charge a lower five cents less on another site. And I got penalized by Amazon and more and sellers are going to come out and start saying that. So it's going to just, it's like the expression that someone once made is the trial is the remedy. And I think that's really important. Like the public exposure of these practices really matters, right? Beyond just like the, the ultimate like resolution and remedy, the public exposure does matter and it does have significant impacts it will influence congress it will influence state legislators it will influence how people within amazon think it will influence how unions who are trying to organize amazon approach their strategy like this is a bigger game than just just sort of like who wins this narrow court battle and how long it takes so it's very positive there's not a lot going well right now in our society but this is one area that i think is well, Matt, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. And Amanda, thank you for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Amanda Lewis and Matt Stoller, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by Sharif Youssef. Legal review by David Brelo. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or at ryan.grimm at theintercept.com and put deconstructed in the subject line. Otherwise, we might miss your message. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. 